0: G'day, I'm Glenn Davis, and this is The Policy Shop, a place where we think about policy choices. And in the wash-up from the Australian federal election, we ask, is the party over? Are people disengaging from politics? There is no doubt that there is a level of disillusionment with politics, with government, and with the major parties, our own included. And we, we note that and we respect it. That was Malcolm Turnbull speaking at a press conference in Sydney three days after the 2nd of July 2016 federal election, an election that saw the Labor Party record its second lowest primary vote since 1949 and the Coalition's primary vote fall also. But in contrast, minor parties and independents recorded their highest level of votes in Australian electoral history. And all of this following one of the country's longest-ever election campaigns. Australians have endured 55 days of constant political messaging in newspapers, letterboxes, television, the internet and social media, not to mention SMS and robocalls on our phones. But while the major parties have spent millions on campaign advertising, academic research suggests that fewer people are taking notice. So do these trends reflect simple voter apathy, or do they point to deeper problems of trust? Does the growing support for independence suggest that people aren't so much disengaged with politics, but rather disillusioned with Australia's major parties? And where do young people fit into this pattern? To discuss these and so many other questions, I'm delighted to welcome two distinguished colleagues from the School of Social and Political Science at the University of Melbourne. Dr. Andrea Carson lectures in politics and media and is an honorary fellow at the Centre for Advancing Journalism. She's also one of the team behind Australia's Vote Compass, an online civic engagement tool that lets people explore how their views align with political candidates. Welcome, Andrea.
1: Lovely to be here.
0: And Dr. Lauren Rosewan is a political scientist who writes and researches on a range of topics, including sexuality, gender, feminism, public policy, and politics. Thank you for joining us, Laura. Thank you for having me. So first to you, Andrea, if I may. As we record this conversation, Australians are back in familiar territory, the possibility of a hung parliament, with neither side gaining the 76 seats needed to form a majority government. And we've got a Senate that's going to have at least nine crossbenchers. What do you think this result tells us about the mood of the Australian voter?
1: Yes, it's an excellent question. As we speak, there's still a number of seats that are in doubt and we don't know which side they're going to go and we're not sure yet which uh, political party is going to be able to form government. We also know that the crossbench in the lower house and the crossbench that's looking likely to emerge in the upper house might be going in two different directions. And on top of that, we're seeing one in four Australians have put their vote away from the major parties with either minor parties or independents. I think this tells us something we've known for some time, and that is that the two major political parties are not satisfying all the needs of voters at this time.
0: So the political commentator, Laura Tingle, writes about the great disengagement, the fact, as she puts it, that voters are completely over politics. Do you agree?
1: I think we need to be really careful to separate disillusionment with engagement, because there's many indications that voters are more engaged with politics than ever before, but perhaps doing it in very different ways to the formal politics that we're used to seeing. And I'll give you an example of that. Facebook has been collecting data over the course of this campaign, and they found that Australians had 30 million interactions, which includes original posts, likes, comments and shares on keywords that they identified as being political words. In the eight weeks of the campaign, and that was 3.6 million Australians who were participating. Likewise, at Melbourne University, we were part of the Vote Compass, the academic sponsors, and we had over a million people participate in Vote Compass, which was down a little from 2013 when we had 1.6 million people, but that might have been because there was a rival instrument in the public sphere and also because it wasn't the novelty factor from 2013. So I think people are interested in politics, and I certainly think young people are interested in politics, but just not in the conventional ways that the political commentariat tend to talk about.
0: Lauren, Michelle Grattan has argued that, and I quote, people have lost faith and trust and are therefore opting out. But we've just heard an argument that there's a difference between engagement and uh, disillusionment. How do you read this?
2: Yeah, I think if I talk to people outside of the university as to what I do for a job, they're going, I'm going to say I'm a political scientist and they're going to recoil in horror because for a lot of people who aren't in this business, politics is about parties. And I think that's where we're seeing people sort of feeling distrustful and disinterested around these topics of labour versus liberal. And I think people outside of um, universities actually are interested in the nuts and bolts about what politics looks at social issues and social justice. They're just not framing it and thinking about it in the context of being Labor versus Liberal and I think this is where we're getting the two issues converging a little bit and I think unhappily and it's becoming a bit of a mess where uh, people are interested in politics, I think they're not so much interested in the argy-bargy of parties and I think that's showing in declining numbers in political membership, declining numbers in activity in sites created by the parties in, in this sort of controlled space of engagement. People want to engage, but they want to do it on their own terms outside of the parties and separate from them.
0: So should we care? Should we be worried that the parties are not commanding the authority they once did?
2: Look, I'm an academic. I don't want to say worried. I, I think it's an opportunity. It's always an opportunity <laughs> for us to have conversations, and I also think it—it's—it yeah—it's an opportunity as well to, to carve out new advice for parties as well in terms of what they need to run with. But also this question of is parties the way we're going in the future, or in fact is there the rise of the independent candidate? And I think the United States provides a very good example of a big country doing just that at the moment. Mm. If
1: I could add to that point, some scholars such as Pip. Norris say that a certain amount of um, lowered political trust is actually a good thing because it means that the public are vigilant. They're not taking for granted that the politicians know all the answers. They're watching out. And if we look at uh, political trust levels in Australia, they've always been kind of characteristically sceptical or low, if, you, if you'd like to say. And the measurements we've had with Vote Compass show that political trust was low in this election, but it was actually slightly higher than it was in 2013. And I think there's
2: something to also be said about this idea of trust and the fact that the public are always going to want more of it. They're going to want greater accountability. And I don't think uh, it's actually not in our nature to blindly trust anymore. And I think the media encourages that we don't do that. So one of the newspapers, news.com.au, did a study on values recently. And it came up that accountability is what people valued most. Now, God knows what they actually were defining as accountability, but it sounds like it's a motherhood statement. More accountability has to be good. And I think trust. Of course, we want to trust people more than we do. I think that's a bit of a uh, an airy-fairy claim as well. I don't think we can actually quantify it when will we feel fully trusting of a politician.
0: It's interesting to note that voter enrolment has actually gone up as a percentage of the population from 92% to 95% over the last three years. And in particular, 18 to 24-year-olds are much more likely to enrol now than in the past. So there's a trend one way. But to go, Lauren, to your point about the parties, in the early 1970s, some 90% of Australians identified principally with one of the major parties. That number's now a good deal less than 75%. And even of those who do identify, only a third of them have any real trust in the party that they claim as their own. And party membership is also falling. The major parties could boast 100,000 or more members uh, not so long ago. Um, Both are down to below 50. The Greens have perhaps 10,000 members. But again, is this a concern or are we seeing engagement shifting direction?
2: It's a concern for the parties, absolutely. And I think, you know, they need to... uh, It's... it's, uh it's a way for them to gauge and and to assemble their popularity going forward. So for them, it's really important to have high numbers. For the rest of outside of society, no, I don't think it's necessarily a worry. I think the fact that people are doing their political activity in different ways now, not affiliated with a party or a branch, I think that's a, a social change that's transpired. But there's some interesting reasons as to why that's taken place. I think there is a certainly in a, in a number of branches disillusionment that I've been a party faithful at this branch for so many years just to have a, a candidate planted in my spot who's just a ring-in. And I think this is this type of thing has uh, created frustration within parties and, and, again, disillusionment and distrust as well.
0: Andrea, what does it mean for our democracy to get this shift in patterns of how people identify and vote?
1: Well, one of the things that you noted was that the enrolment rate had gone up and had gone up among young people. And I think that's a really important move because if we look at the Brexit movement that occurred, less than 30% of those aged between 18 and 24 showed up to vote. And they are also the category when they were surveyed to show that they wanted to remain part of Europe, and yet they weren't there to have their say. And that's got drastic consequences for the future of those young people. But if we look at what happened in Australia, the AEC, the Australian Electoral Commission, not to mention Facebook, had a very concerted campaign to get young people to enrol to vote. So Facebook pushed into people's messages, into their feeds to enrol to vote. And uh, just before the cutoff date, they know they had eight million people look at that feed and that clicked through directly to 150,000 people going to the AEC website, which might explain why Australia is now up to the 95% turnout, which of course we have compulsory voting, but that's a good outcome. And
2: I think there's something to be said as well about the influence the United States has on us, because there's been a lot of campaigns, though Barack Obama was in one, trying to get Americans to come out to vote and and to actually register. And I think Australians, perhaps uh, this is new for a lot of them, that this is actually something you actually have to actively do, even in Australia where it is compulsory voting, you still have to get onto the electoral roll. And I think we've been influenced as well by US campaigns to get out there and have our say as well. And I think that's had an impact.
0: And the Brexit result is fascinating, isn't it? 70% of young people in favour of staying in Europe but not enough actually turning up to vote to swing the decision.
1: But the other side to this is even if they did turn up to vote, they probably wouldn't be able to influence the outcome because of the skew in ages within the population. Uh, Most Western democracies or Western states are going through, they have a high level of baby boomers compared to younger people. And so younger people at the Brexit vote had to be in the high 70s if they were going to try and equalise that outcome. So perhaps maybe they recognised that and thought, well, we're not part of this process, we don't feel like we belong to it, and so they didn't turn out.
0: Warren, Europe has also seen the same decline in party membership, and the political scientist Ingrid von Bryson there notes that new and alternative forms of organisation are taking the place of the traditional parties, organisations that rely on social media, local meetups, some with horizontal organisations, some with no membership at all. Are the same things happening here?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is – I had a book published this year on how the internet has changed intimacy and how we do things like friendship and relationships and how it's become the key way that we meet people or the key way that we organise activity, et cetera. Now, this is a very – you know, this is a – the last 10 years this change has transpired – But the trend in terms of our disengagement from things such as joining our churches and joining social clubs has actually been happening since the 90s. You know, Putnam wrote Bowling Alone to to mark this trend. Yeah, it coincides with the rise of mainstream internet access and I think there's something to be said about when we talk about new types of political engagement transpiring. Nearly all of these new types are actually happening online. So I think there's something to be said about the technology almost encouraging us to get away from or, or to step away from those sort of bricks and mortar physical type political um, politicking that we used to be involved in.
0: And what are the demographic implications here?
2: It's interesting because we've got this stereotype that it's all a young people's game. But in fact, if you look at you know data on uh, Facebook, the highest take-up rate has been with older people, hence why a whole lot of younger people are dropping out of Facebook. Online dating, older people have, have a greater involvement in online dating. Not Tinder, but sort of the traditional older sites like eHarmony and match.com so I think there is something to be said about not misunderstanding the data and not associating technology just with young people we've had the internet for nearly 25 years now I think we need to step away from thinking that this is just a millennial or gen y game
1: You mentioned before, Glenn, about the numbers of people belonging to political parties. And indeed, it's true that more people belong to football clubs or to the scout movement or to the RSL or the RACV than they do to political parties. And if we compare that to an organisation like GetUp, it claims to have one million members, whereas the Labor Party and the Liberal Party are both hovering around the 50,000 mark. And part of this is because GetUp constantly communicates with its membership base via online and also calls people to action. It has get-up parties where people can meet face-to-face and it has very specific campaigns. And one of the things it does is understand its demographics very, very well and it is doing experiments with its followers constantly, putting out messages, seeing what gets taken up, refining the message. And this week we've had two Liberal senators come out and complain in Tasmania about the get-up campaign that was leveraged in their seats because people turned out in masses of numbers to... um, um, protest about some of the what they saw as social disadvantage going on in Tasmania which had an effect of 3 seats going from the liberals over to the ALP
0: which in this election will turn out to be very important indeed let's stay with social media for a minute you've published uh, a lot of research about political campaigning how is social media changing that campaigning and again what are the messages from a democratic viewpoint?
1: Kevin Rudd was probably the starting point in Australia for social media. He was the first Australian politician to have over a million followers on Twitter. And this came off the back of what was happening in the US. And often uh, the literature suggests that Australia's one election cycle behind what's going on in the US. If we look at some of the studies that our colleagues in Queensland have done, they found a 238% increase in social media use of politicians between 2007 and 2013. And the movement has gone away from Twitter and personal websites and direct email more towards Facebook and other forms such as YouTube and Instagram. And what we're seeing there in this election campaign is that pretty much every political actor who wanted to have a presence needed to have a Facebook page or have some sort of social media presence. The political parties understand that it's fast, it's relatively cheap, and the information goes out immediately. You compare that to the old methods of campaigning of direct mail, uh, which is now quite expensive through Australian Post, political parties have finite resources, and so social media becomes a a great way to reach those hard to get to voters.
0: And what does that mean for traditional media? Because a lot of people have observed about the most recent campaign, though the traditional media campaigned hard in favour of its preferred candidates, they didn't do so well.
1: I think this is a really interesting question about the cultural power of traditional media. If we look at the 2013 campaign and the types of campaigns that News Corp ran with front page headlines such as, does this guy ever shut up, referring to Kevin Rudd, there was similar front pages this time with Bill Nokio against Bill Shorten and also likening him to Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. And most of the 17 metropolitan daily newspapers, Fairfax and News Corp, editorialised that it was going to be a Turnbull victory. There was only one exception to that, and that was the Sunday Age. They got it wrong. They misread what was happening. And I think there is a real disconnect between where the voter is, the average Australian, and where the political class is that includes journalists and politicians. And they didn't read the mood.
0: So why are journalists so out of touch
1: I think because they socialise with each other, by and large. I mean, and I say this with some experience. I was a journalist. Journalists are, are relatively middle class. They have great access to areas of privilege, to be able to meet the decision makers in society. And I think they don't spend enough time just talking to the people who are at the end of those decisions, the Australians who have to live by whatever policies are being made. And increasingly, there's not the shoe leather journalism to get out there. Journalism's under a lot of pressure, a lot of the work's done from the desk and the telephone or over the net, rather than just talking to people face to face.
0: It's an important change, isn't it?
1: I think
2: so. And that's one of the most interesting things that has came out of Brexit. Why did all the London papers get it so wrong? And some of the commentary has been centred on how they were just spending all of their time in London, talking amongst themselves and talking about other people who took it as a foregone conclusion, as opposed to stepping out and talking to people in Manchester or Newcastle about how was this actually being read in terms of the relationship with the EU. And that was a good example of how badly journalists got punished for not stepping outside of London.
0: So let's turn to one of the groups that are not being well represented in the traditional media, and that's young people. It's interesting to read Professor Lisa Hill from University of Adelaide writing that young people are moving away from mainstream political parties and many don't value their vote or believe that their vote makes any difference. Is this a trend we're seeing widely amongst the young?
2: Yeah, I and mean, it's it's interesting because again, sort of young people tend to be the ones who are most interested and passionate about politics. If I look at it, my own students, you know, yeah, sure, it's disproportionate because they are a self-selecting group who've chosen to study politics. But they're also, this is this is a group who uh, have passions that tend to die as we get older. You know, on one hand, how are political parties not harnessing this? That's I think that's a really interesting question. But I do think young people do feel that the major parties are arm's length at best removed from their issues. Also I think there's something to be said about the way political contests are fought in Australia. You're basically fighting for the terrain of the swinging voter and that's a really narrow group of people who are being targeted in most campaigns. Young people don't fall in into that category so yeah you could say that, that they're being paid lip service too. I think a lot of social media campaigns, particularly the very try-hard ones, are very much about young people trying to get them to you know, do the work for a party and and forward on the, you know, make, make our bad ad go viral. It's not going to happen. But nonetheless, that's the dream. And I think young people can see through it. And I think that's not what political parties are giving young people enough credit for, is the savvy in which they can actually read campaigning better than, than they than certainly anticipated.
0: Andrea, the, the Vote Compass exercise, I think, showed pretty clearly that trust amongst young people in the political process was was very low. What's driving that?
1: Yes, it was low. It was lower than it was for other age groups. It was around about the 3.5 mark out of 10. And at its highest, it was five for Malcolm Turnbull. He was seen as the most trusted leader, Bill Shorten, the least trusted, Richard Dean Natale for the Greens, somewhere in between. But none of them particularly high, ranging from that 3.5 to 5 level. And I wonder whether it's, as Lauren says, that younger people often get left out of the political process. Another thing that we found with Vote Compass, when we asked people to nominate the most important issue for them. Overwhelmingly across most age groups and most demographics and regardless of university education or not, it was the economy followed by health education environment. For younger people, one of the top priorities was LGBTI rights in the 18 to 24 group. Now that issue often gets relegated just to same-sex marriage when it actually includes much more than that. And not a lot of the eight-week campaign was really spent discussing that issue other than whether a plebiscite would get through or not, which is not what the key concern is of the younger demographic.
0: And given the arguments after the result about the alleged effects of negative advertising, did you see through the course of the campaign shifts in trust and negative advertising reinforce concerns about trust.
1: I I think that's a valid point. One of the reasons why politicians use negative advertising, and even though people don't like it, we know they don't like it. It's not just younger people. Whenever uh, there's a public debate and they put the worm on to get instant reactions, the moment the conversation turns negative, the worm dives right down. But the other reason we know that politicians continue to use it is it's easier to sell fear than hope. And we see this in equal measure with Donald Trump. And he's someone who gets a enormous cut through. He provides certainty in an uncertain world. He gives people lashings of fear about the other. But he also, just when people are really despairing, he gives them hope with things such as, let's make America great again. I mean, what's not to love? What a seductive message that is. Very simple answers. But I think younger people see through this and they get turned off by it.
2: Yeah, and I think there's something to be said about the neg- the negativity in terms of advertising was really strong in the television advertising, and yet most marketing research is going to say television is not your most effective way to target people anymore, particularly given that this is a download generation who's also going to fast forward the commercials, and yet negativity doesn't play well in a viral video. I'm not going to forward an ad that's a negative Bill Shorten telling someone else that he's a great you know an untrustworthy politician, etc. I'm not going to forward that in my social media. So I think this idea of having to on one hand, parties are very wedded to the negative campaign because that's how they've traditionally politicked for years and years and years. But now they're wanting to move on to social media, yet are still using some of the old tricks and wondering why it's not working. And I think this is that gap between um, mediums, I think, is an interesting aspect.
1: If I could just add to that, and, and I agree with those comments, uh, one of the ways that younger people, or most of us will engage is through humour. And we're seeing a rise in um, political satire and shows such as Mad as Hell and chaser team, where they use humour and they do get a much younger demographic. And there's a couple of reasons for this. One is that when we're laughing at a message, research shows we're more open to hearing what the message is. So we're not turned off by the idea that it's politics because there's humour at the base of it. Uh, I guess another is that it's funny, it pokes fun at authority. And this is a way of connecting. Jon Stewart in the US, no longer with The Daily Show, but was, many political science studies found that younger people got more more political information out of watching that program than what they did hearing the nightly news.
0: Which is a very profound change because all of the patterns of how you get to an audience shift at that point. Lauren, we've talked a bit about young people, but are there gender-based differences in political engagement?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I was thinking about this as I was coming in because this was um, the university's media office asked, would I be making myself available to talk about this topic in the aftermath of the election? And it hasn't actually, to me, nothing has really jumped out in terms of uh, giving me data on this in the Australian context. I think in the US it's playing out in an, in an interesting way where, for example, the leaders are having, or the, the want-to-be leaders are having trouble courting women you know, both uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are having problems get wooing women. I don't see it playing out to the same extent in Australia um, in this campaign. Yeah.
0: So after this vote is finally settled, there'll be somewhere between 42 and 48 women in the parliament. Does it make a difference to political trust and to women in particular? when more women are engaged in the process?
2: I think there's something to be said about seeing ourselves reflected in our parliament. Whether that actually impacts on people's feelings of engagement, I'm not sure. But I do think it... it reminds us about representation and this question of are these people that have been voted in representing who I am? Can I see myself in them? And I think that's not just women, that's LGBTI people, but it's also disabled people and people who aren't white. There's a whole broad range of people who I don't think are seeing themselves represented in Parliament. And I think that raises some some important issues to think about as well.
1: I think there's also an issue about participation. If we look at the number of women who put their hand up for pre-selection and then go on to be enrolled or to represent their party, at this election, there were around about 1,600 candidates. 500 of those were female, the rest were male. So already you've got an imbalance going on. And then that flows on through to the final numbers of the Parliament. Not only that, women often get preselected for marginal seats that are very hard to win. You might remember when Cheryl Kernow was given the seat of Dixon, I think it was, and at first she thought she'd lost it and then it turned around that she'd actually won it by a number of votes. But in that interim, she was very angry that she was given that marginal seat when she moved from the Democrats as the leader there to the ALP and had to fight so hard for that seat. And so, in Vote Compass, again, we looked at the question of quotas, and I know, Lauren, you've looked at this too, and it found that, by and large, women support quotas. Men don't. Younger people support them. And if I was to do a really rough, crude analysis of that, I would say those without power largely support quotas. Those who already have it can't see the need for it.
2: Yeah, and I think it's, it's also foolhardy to think that men are going to want to willingly give up power. You know, most <laughs> this isn't the... Uh, on the agenda for most men certainly some men but most men aren't going to willingly give up their power my father and husband excluded from that Oh, and (laughs) excluded as well it's just that i think in the general when you're looking at at data collected on this topic yeah men aren't going to put their hands up and say yeah i support quotas because all quotas mean for them is i'm going to lose out at the end of the day and changing that mindset culturally i think's really important not just for politics but for corporate boards and other and other areas where quotas are relevant
0: So as we turn to home, let me ask a couple of things. Uh, Andrea, is... Is minority government the new normal? Is this what we're going to have to learn to get used to?
1: I love this question and I love it for a couple of reasons and that is that there's this fear in Australia about minority government and yet we've seen examples of great minority governments. If we think to the Victorian government of the first iteration of Steve Brax's government, that was a minority government with three crossbenchers and that was a fairly stable government and Steve Brax then went on to have majority rule at the next election. Julia Gillard uh, had a minority government crossbench of three We all remember the 17 days it took and the very long speech before we knew exactly who was going, um, Rob Oakeshott was going to support. But she passed a record number of um, bills while she was prime minister with a minority government and 85% of those bills had bipartisan support. So even though we see tension and friction between the two major parties, by and large they do come together to produce quality legislation. So, And then, of course, there's the examples of Europe where you've got mixed-member proportional representation. New Zealand also moved away from first-past-the-post and it also has a system that, by and large, produces minority or coalition governments. This, in Australia, shouldn't be seen as something that we should be fearful of necessarily. It's
2: also interesting that the Liberals had such a focus on all the bad things that might happen if Labor and the Greens form a coalition. What the Liberals failed to acknowledge and what Labor didn't capitalise on is the Liberals would never win government if they weren't in a coalition and we seem to keep forgetting that they're in a coalition with the Nationals and that's been the case for a really long time. We're already experiencing a coalition. We know this this very well. It seems a missed opportunity for Labor given how much mileage the Libs got out of fear factoring the, the potential of a Greens coalition.
1: Not only that, but Australians really rejected the idea that bringing independence, minority government, uh, minor parties into play is something that they don't want. If we look at South Australia, about 35% of the vote went to smaller parties, including Nick Xenophon. That's one in three people rejecting the major
0: parties. So Lauren, what needs to change if we want to ensure that political engagement levels remain high and that people don't drop out of the system?
2: Hmm, that's a tricky question to leave us with. Um, Okay, I guess diversity of views and diversity of outlets for where they can be expressed. And I think this is, you need a hook. A lot of people need a hook to get them into politics because most of them aren't going to be like us. You know, this that it isn't their career. Most people will have a very um, uh, hard job getting them into politics and getting them passionate about it. So I think trying to have a whole range of outlets that that op- op- offer <laughs> opportunities for discourse around these topics is really important. And I think that that thus sort of leaves this with the media having a having a really important role in this as well as social media as well.
1: Yeah, I concur. I think there needs to be inclusiveness and at a social level as well as wealth distribution at an economic level. As we see the disparity between the rich and the poor get wider and wider, I think that makes many people feel disenfranchised and we really need to address that. And one of the ways perhaps to address that is to have more voices in the political process and that's what Australians effectively are voting for. The other thing, I am on the side of Peter Credlin here where I think maybe it's time to have a public discussion about four-year terms so that a policy agenda can really be set and there can be time to implement that rather than this permanent campaign and a constant politicking.
0: This has been a great conversation. Thank you both. And I think you've pointed to a number of interesting lessons. One is the long-term trends we're seeing at play here. It isn't that people are pulling out of the political system. They're pulling away from the major parties. Quite a different point of view. And it is also the case that they're pulling away from traditional media. So we're seeing new forms of engagement. And in a sense, campaigns happen below the radar now. They're not as visible. And we saw that in Britain earlier in the year where no one predicted the outcome because the real campaign wasn't done in the traditional way. We're seeing some continuities, such as the absence of women in equal numbers in, in our process. But if the trends continue then presumably, as you've just said, Andrea, we're going to see pressure on existing institutions, on the current arrangements. And many of those independents and minor parties, for example, will challenge our single-member constituencies and say, shouldn't we have a system more like New Zealand where the plurality of voices get a, get a run? So uh, lots to learn from this very interesting election. It's been a great pleasure today to spend time with Andrea Carson and Lauren Roseworn. Thank
1: you. Pleasure. Great to be here
0: both from the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Thank you for your company. I'm Glyn Davis and catch you next time on The Policy Shop.
1: Policy Shop is produced by Owen Heisey and Heather Jarvis with audio engineering by Gavin Neighbour and research this episode by Lauren Palmer. You can listen to The Policy Shop at pursuit.unimelb.edu.au and make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Copyright
0: University of Melbourne 2016.